be seated. You pray for me. I'm preaching. Uh, I, my throat is really rough again. I, I won't tell you what happened, but but it's just rough. So uh, you pray for. Uh, uh, we look at this text together. Uh, the text is really about unity. The apostle started in verse 27, up above in chapter 1, and very much in chapter 2, then that's what he's dealing with. In verse 2 he says, Fulfill ye my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being one accord and of one mind. He's talking about unity in the Philippian church. We know later there's a couple people mentioned, so there must have been some kind of problem there. I believe that we should apply the teaching when you deal with this. He's dealing with the problem in the church, but we, the principles of what he's dealing with in the church, even if you apply them on a wider scale, uh, that's what you must do. I, I think I mentioned last week the turning the cheek and, and going the second mile. To me, those have been two of the most important principles I've tried to use in counseling people through the years in marriage. Uh, I've talked, it doesn't say anything about marriage in that text, but it's the principle of life. You turn the cheek, you go the second mile. Um, you, uh, Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4, you forbear, you have patience. What it is, you just put up with it, put up with it. So um, you, you apply it. And, and, and very, very important uh, to do this. Some years ago, and I've mentioned this different times, I became... Acquainted, I think I did mention it the last few weeks, with William Glasser's teaching on, on family life and the problems he deals with. He called the marriage the primary relationship of life. He said, your primary relationship of life is, is, the is the relationship you have with the person you marry, the closest. And wherever there's problems, he says, you always look to that. Well, he's talking about depression. He's talking about unhappiness. He's talking about people uh, going up and down, what they call bipolar. He said, if they focus in on... What's going on in their life that could help these people? He didn't believe in giving people medicine. He was a psychiatrist. He didn't believe in medicine. He didn't believe in going back into family history and keep them on the couch for months and months and years and years either. He believed in finding out what's going on in your life right now and offended people that he did that. But uh, after years and years, he's dead now, but years and years, he, he concluded the biggest problem between uh, husband and wife and primary relationships and driving depressions of life and so forth, what he called deadly habits that people had. They weren't even aware of, uh, at times that they were using these deadly habits to try to control. They, the things were going on in their life, they weren't even so much aware of it sometimes. But he called, he said that most people's problem is their primary relationship of life and most of the biggest problem there, he said, was this people use deadly habits to try to control the other person. They try to control the other person. Some, maybe it's the wife trying to control the husband, husband trying to control the wife, but they have these deadly habits of control. And he listed seven of them. And he said criticism is the number one, most deadly. They criticize, they, they become very critical of the other person. What they're trying to do is control that person. Or secondly, he called blaming. They blame people for what's happening. And what they're really trying to do is control that person. Complaining. <coughs> Excuse me. Complaining. Nagging. That's number four. Threatening. Number five. Threatening. It's in some way threatening. 
punishing. Uh, number six, and then the seventh, he said, they'll reward to control. In other words, you give somebody something, but you're really not giving them something to make them happy. You're interested in making them happy. You're trying to control them by giving. People do that. Then he offered seven uh, alternatives. And I'm not trying to preach these or anything. Think about William Glasser. He, I wouldn't, he wasn't a Christian, I don't believe at all. And I don't never recommend his books unless I'm talking to somebody that I think be careful in how they read them. So I say you have to be careful. But what I do like about him, he comes very close to the Bible. In other words, you hold people responsible for their actions. And if they'll change their actions, they'll change their outcome. Right? Like going to the doctor with a heartburn. He says, you quit eating this, this, and this. You quit getting that, and that, and that. Well, it never did me any good because I won't change the action, you see. And he tells me I have to give up something that's dear to me. I say, I think I'll just take something from a heartburn. And... Um, so you keep going back and back and say, Doctor, you haven't cured me of my heartburn. He said, no, no, I won't cure you of it because you won't change your action. And most people's life, most people's problem in life about that simple. If they change a few things they're doing, they change the outcome. They want change without changing. You know, in other words, they want their, old, their, their husband, I started to say, their, <laughs> uh, they want their husband to change, but they're not willing to change. Once the wife changes, they're not willing to change. They won't change without changing. Anyway, the seven alternatives, he called them supporting, encouraging, listening, accepting, trusting, respecting. And then that seventh one is really difficult in negotiating differences. But the point I'm making is without realizing it, without realizing that people have these deadly habits of life that goes on and on in their marriages and life, they don't realize that what they're doing actually is what's causing their problems. And, and that's, you get into the Bible when you start talking that. You, you want to solve your problems, you say, I don't pray about it. Lord say, get up, quit praying about it, and start doing this. Uh, not that anything wrong with praying, but sometimes we can be hypocritical about praying when we need to stop, start doing something, like praying for potatoes and bread in your house. Set your alarm clock and get up and go to work. That's how you get bread and potatoes in your house. And I can tell you this, if you won't set your alarm clock and get up and go to work, you're wasting your time praying. Well, I believe that's true, but Glenn believes it too. And I heard him squeeze out a little amen. Well, so, but there's these habits of life. Um, people have them without realizing the character flaws and problems. And uh, there are people that, that don't like to fuss and, and argue, but they don't realize the things about their life that need to change to change those things. Here in this passage, he, he, he is, there's no question what he's after, like-minded unity. And as I told you last week, it, it's prominent in the apostles' writings. It was prominent in the teaching of Jesus. It's prominent in the book of James. Why? He says, from whence come wars and uh, fightings among you, he said they come from your lust. That's what he said in the fourth chapter. And so he deals with those type of things. He deals with the tongue and so forth in chapter 3. And all through the, the, the New Testament you find that this is a big thing. It's a big thing. And so, but here, look at, look at the, the deadly unity killers, I'm calling them, as the first. And we're not going to stay on this long because I want to get to the meat of this passage. In fact, I'd like to already been there. 
But in verse 3, following verse 2, where it says, Fulfill my joy, being like-minded, uh, uh, like-souled is the word there, I believe that's right. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Then watch this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. And the, and the uh, King James puts the word strife. The, the word could even be partisan. You know, you have politics. And they talk about partisan politics. What that's about is one party just caring about what they care about without looking at the whole. And we say that that's just partisan politics. Well, we can get into that mindset, partisan. In other words, it's what's for me. And if you look at the different translations of this uh, word, you'll find, you'll find selfish ambition uh, is, is prominent in this. Uh, the New King James here is selfish ambition. And uh, you look at that, and uh, then you look at the English Standard Version, selfish ambition. Let nothing be done with selfish ambition. New American Standard Bible, let nothing be, uh, do nothing from selfishness. So you can see all of these other translations, look at this word that's translated strife in the King James Bible. They translate it by the word selfishness or selfish ambition. The root of all sin is selfishness. Man is going to do what he wants to do instead of what God says do. That's selfishness. I'm going to live, what it, I'm living my life my way. Our songwriters, uh, he did it his way. Uh, I, I, a man lives uh, according to the way that they want. Well, my friend, that's what, uh, if everybody lives that way, he did it, he did it, I did it my way. That, that becomes famous. Most of I did it my way. If everybody does that, try your wife doing it and you do it at the same time. You're, I did it my way. She says, I did it my way. And then you got the unstoppable meat and the unmovable. You're, you got to crash head on, head on. Crash, you do. And so selfish ambition, that's the idea here. And uh, uh, ambition, uh, you, you must uh, distinguish what he's saying from zeal. Zeal is good if it's right. You're in the Old Testament. One of the, one of the uh, people in the Old Testament come and see my zeal for the Lord, if the zeal's right. But you know ambition is coming to the church. And it's selfish ambition. And uh, uh, a lot of preacher ambition. Preachers, you look at what motive. It's a personal ambition. They've come out and they're going to do this. And, and I have to say, we have to deal with that, you see. You say, I think you should have, and begin to lay it out, want to run the church like a business model where you've, you've determined what you, where you're going to be. And, and that, that's fine. You're building Walmart. You're building something else. But my friend, the church of Jesus Christ Got to be built on biblical principle. And got to be built to the glory of God. And you and I, you and I, if we're in the Lord's work, we can't just do things like we want to do them. We have to always be governed by the Bible. The Bible is so, uh, this same apostle, he says, we don't peddle the word of God. Uh, we we got to be careful about that. We become peddlers. We become people. We're ambitious. And that's what's happening. Then you have conceit. Is, is this, uh, that's nothing but deadly pride. And he deals with these before he gets into the positive, you see. He said, you're not going to have unity where everybody's determined to have their own way. Selfish ambition. And you're not going to have unity when it's all about me, the pride, conceit. 
And what I'm saying is, there are many people, they, they, they want the joy and they want the harmony. They want the wonderful life, but there's these deadly killer things that they're unaware of. That they, are, that they have made this about themselves. And it happens in a home by, by men and women alike. And, and, and you take those principles in, in a home, people are having a very difficult time getting along. Because this one is determined this is what they want, and this one determined what that's. Uh, but then they become a part of something bigger sometimes, like a church. And all of a sudden, people that are fussing at home all the time, they're agreed in something bigger. They agree on something bigger. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing when enemies, enemies get together on a cause that they would never get together on. And um, that, ha- that happens. But these are, the apostle, it, it isn't enough to go on to what he does, go on to the positive. He starts by the negative. He says, he, he starts by, don't let anything be done through selfish ambition. And, and it's not right to do things as a basis of pride. Conceit. You know, pride is one of those three deadly things. The Bible says all that's in the world. Everything is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh is desire, desire for carnal pleasure. Lust of the eyes, the desire to possess and have. And then the pride of life is this desire to be. It's about me. And we have become a very much a, a culture that is taught to think first about me. And that's what he's talking about here. If everybody is about themselves, there's no way. You can have harmony. You can't have peace. Uh, in the Lord's work, in family life, it just can't happen. So he starts. You can never. He's going to go on and talk about the mind of Christ. He's going to talk about these other things. These won't happen if these deadly habits. Like I told you, you have marriages. They're not aware that of this, these controlling habits. They're destroying their marriage. And we're not sometimes aware of the selfish ambition. See, that, that uh, it, you, you've got to deal with these negatives. So he, he moves on. He, says, he puts the but right there in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, humility of mind. Let each esteem uh, the, the, the others better than themselves. Maybe some translations put it more important. See, we have this idea we have to wrestle with. Pride causes us to wrestle with. We, we rank people. We rank people. For instance, doctors. And I'm not here to speak against doctors at all. I, they've helped me a lot through the years. I, I, I've gone to a doctor more than probably anybody in this room has uh, to just prove to my wife that my sicknesses aren't in my head. They're real. I got problems, but, but I appreciate them. But, you know, doctors sometimes think themselves superior. Educators do that. Educators. You'd be surprised. You get out there, a bunch of group, group of plumbers, and they're going to be fighting over who's the best plumber. I used to do some floor covering when I was young. And my, that was the debate. I look back and I think, what did that matter? Who was the best? Who did the best? But it's always that way that... And, and so here he's saying, you're going to have to have a humility about your lowliness of mind so much that you esteem the others. See, he's going to go to talk about a servant mentality. A servant mentality. 
when the servant has a, a, a servant mentality, they don't uh, mind the servant work because they don't think themselves superior. Uh, you know, the Bible uses uh, a couple of different words for servant, uh, different words. One is the doulos. We're going to see that here. And that's a slave. A slave in relationship to his master. A slave is actually someone who's owned. He's not his own. Sound familiar in the Bible, don't it? As Christians, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. That's the doulos. That's the slave. But that is the word we get our word deacon from. Deacon doesn't look at service in relationship to an owner, but deacon looks at service in relationship to the kind of work you do. And wherever you see a deacon, if they're following New Testament pattern, that very term means they do servant work. That's what they do. They're deacons. The deaconos. They do work as servants, you see. So they don't think of themselves as superior to others. Now, so he says, uh, uh, you, you do the lowest of mine, let's each esteem others more important. Or deserving of our service, we might say. Let each of us not look on our own interest, but let's take care of the interest of others. You apply that principle to marriage and you'll solve every, almost everything. In almost every area. Every man, focus. I get a conviction about this. I start thinking too much. I, I, I do sometimes take some stuff off the table and put it in the sink. But I'm thinking, next thing I know, I'm going to be doing the dishes here. Uh, but uh, sometimes when I really feel bad about it, I say to my wife, you know, I've never asked you to change a tire. And she said, I changed a tire one time in our marriage. She lays it on me. And uh, you don't think, you think she's a meek, meek person, but she lays it on me. And, um, but you start thinking. You're looking at the world in a different perspective. You're, you're, it's not about my selfish ambition or my pride. But you're willing to, you think the other person is deserving more than you. I think most of us men would say this term they use in the world, marrying up. You've heard that term, you marry up. You marry better than yourself, right? You know, you, that's the truth about, about us. And we have to look at that. But you have this negative where we're selfish ambition and pride over against this idea that I'm esteeming that person, I want to take a mentality where that person is better than me. And uh, we have to watch that. Then I'm looking, what, what is that person's concerns? What are that person's interests? It's a whole different perspective of how you look at people and how you look at life. You know, come, come here now. The New Testament gets right down to your life. New Testament. You cannot follow the New Testament and follow the ways of this world. You cannot. You, you will not be singing, I did it my way. That will not be your theme. Jesus Christ and his apostles call us to a whole different way. You, you take this, it'll change the way you treat waitresses at the restaurant. Treat, treat your mechanic differently. Treat people differently, you see. That's, 
that he's talking about a whole attitude change, a whole mindset change. And so he comes now away from the negatives. We move to the positive with the end of verse 3 and 4, but we really get into it here in verse 5, Christ-likeness. Put over against selfishness and conceit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you as a verb. It's a, uh, and it, uh, it's the idea of thinking. In fact, uh, it's, it's here in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7. We see this word, uh, it is right for me to think this of you. You see that word? Chapter 1, verse 7, that's the same word here. It is right for me to think this of you all. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, fulfill my joy, be like-minded. That's the same word of one accord of one mind. Now, it's, it's a passive. You can see that. Let this happen to you. Let this be true to you. In other words, here is the Lord wanting us to come to a way of thinking. And, and, and you and I, we are active in this, but... In a sense, he's coming to us in a passive way. God wants to change the way we think. Now let this happen. Try to allow yourself to come to a place where you think like Christ does. That's big. That's the transformation that God wants for us in our life. You see it? To think like Jesus did. To have the attitude, and I think some translations put it that way. The attitude that Christ had. He's saying, think like Jesus. There is no greater example for us. Sometimes I think uh, we who love Paul's writings, we call them the Pauline epistles. And there's 13 of them for sure. And, and um, sometimes we who love his writings... I think we talk too much about Paul and not about Christ. And that isn't true with Paul. You don't, I just challenge you to go home and start in Romans and go on through the book of Philemon. And just notice Paul's writings and how they focus and center in the person of Christ. Paul would never dream that people would exalt him and spend so much time. I, I, when you're in school, the, the life of Paul, uh, you study it, and there's books written about Paul. I think Paul would, would I think he would, he, would, he would just shrink back from that. He would just think that's horrible that they wrote a book about the life of Paul. I think that's true. I'm not against biographies. I don't think I'm speaking against them. I have loved, bi in fact, I think that's the best way to study history. Find a good biography writer and read. Eon Murray. Read his biographies. Uh, read about Jonathan Edwards from Eon Murray, and you'll get a sense of what happened in the 18th century. I wish uh, Eon Murray had done the two volumes on Spurgeon, but you can read the volumes out there about Spurgeon. You'll get a good indication. There's no better, no better way to study what happened among evangelicals in the 20th century than Eon Murray's book, Two Volumes on Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's well worth anybody's time to read that, to understand, and you'll begin to understand why Christianity is what it is right now. 
But the point, so we're not speaking against biography, but we are saying that Christ Jesus, there is no greater life to study and there are no greater words. No one ever spoke. That's what they said about him. Never a man spake like this man. No one ever spoke like him. Paul can appeal to no greater example. He's wanting unity and he knows Unity is not arrived at directly. It's arrived at indirectly. Are you listening to me? He knows we got to deal with these negative things, this selfish ambition and this conceit. You never have unity till you begin to deal with that. But on the other side, we've got to change the way we think. You see. And, and so you, you're dealing with the negatives and you're dealing with the change, a whole different change of thinking and what that leads you to is a whole different way of life. Unity is not arrived at. Well, say, well, we got to get together. That's what's happened in Christianity. They said, we got to all join together. And they never dealt with why the, the, what was causing the divisions. How many of you know this is true? Those who believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone are never going to be able to walk hand in hand in the Lord's work with people who believe you're saved by your own good works. That, those two things are impossible. If you want, to, you want the evangelicals and Catholics together, then you sign those big things. Some big name people sign them, J.I. Packer and others. And you can read it, that's history. And there are other great names that didn't sign it, won't sign it. Why? They knew they could never be together until they agreed on what the gospel was. So you can't have unity in the sense direct. You've got to deal with the issues that are preventing it. If you listen to me, and not that I have wisdom and understanding, but this is, this is half the ball game, bigger more than half the ball game, what's going on in the breakup of the family and the homes. You've got to deal with those issues. And you've got to have a change in the way you think. And as I said a while ago, can you imagine the home life where the husband has the interest of his wife at heart and the wife has the interest of her husband at heart? Can you imagine what that can arrive? They fall all over each other trying to make each other happy. You know, when Paul deals with the intimacy of life in marriage in Corinthians 7, he deals with the same thing, same principle. I don't get into that now, but it's the same principle. Same principle. Once you put the other person first, once you put the other person's needs first, once you put the other person's interests first. See, and I, I don't want to preach to you too hard, but selfishness is the root of the problem. Selfish ambition. And I tell you, my friend, you don't have to be around people very long. You'll find out who's, who it's all about. It's sad if you find out in a marriage it's all about the husband. You grow up, or he's, and I, if you've got all these, I don't care. I don't care. He's got every kind of toy. You, you, you see 10 different kinds of toys before you get to the door. And you get inside, and the poor woman doesn't have a dishwasher. 
She's probably doing her clothes by wringing them out herself. And uh, I don't, I'm just trying to get in nothing that caused me trouble. Um, my preaching gets me in trouble sometimes because my wife listens. And she says, you better get this right. But, you know, I, I one time tried to decide what's the difference, where's the line between the men and the women in the Amish community? Because I was there a lot with a friend of mine who got his horses shot there, and I found out the men had generators, and they had welders, and they had cutting torches, and they had all that. And the women were doing their clothes you know, the old way. You know where I finally determined the line between modern and, and, and what's not modern is it's where men's work stops and women's work starts, or put it the other way. You just take this word. So he's saying, we got to have a different mind. We got to have a different mind. We got to think different, look different. And I'm telling you, what he's talking to these Philippians is there's got to be a transformation in the way we think. That's the verb. Let this mind be in you. Again, we're passive to the sense we're listening. And God is speaking to us. But we're active in the sense that we have to respond to this. Because when he says, let this, it's obvious we have something to do with this. And he begins to describe that. And, and, and I, let me just, what, I'm going to come back to this for sake of time. You, you people know where we're at in this text. And you're wondering, oh my, we're fixing to go over time. Um, but you read the text, and what he begins to talk to is this, this example of Christ. Paul can find no greater. There are no greater words. There's no greater life to study. It's the life of Christ. And he begins with the, he, he, had, he, had, he was in the form of God. We talk about what that means. Wasn't robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider that. But he humbles himself in verse 7. No reputation. He makes himself of no reputation. Read that in two of these other translations, the ESV and the NASB, I think it is. Both of them uh, say he empties himself. He comes in the likeness of men. He's talking about his becoming a man. And then he talks about how far he went. Uh, he took the, takes on himself the form of a servant. That's a slave. He's found in appearance as a man. He humbles himself, and he becomes obedient in the King James even, or to the, to the point of, the, of death, even, the death of the cross. The New King James does this too. It says, and that gets it right. Some of the other translations read it a little different, but it gets it right. And what it does, it tells us how far he went. So how far are you going to go? Right here in this text, he goes a lot further than what he does in Matthew. You know, Matthew says, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, love your enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you. But here he's saying, in the church, you've got to come to where you think like Christ. You've got to have an attitude like Christ had. What was it? You've got to go back to where he was in glory. You've got to go back and realize he's, he existed in the form of God. And then you've got to realize how far he came. He didn't just become a man. He took the place of a slave. But that's not how far he went. He went to be, he submitted to the point of death. 
even to the point of the cross. I hear people say, well, how far should I go? Preacher, what I got to do? Uh, Jesus said in Christianity, you count the cost. And if you become a Christian, you'll say, I'll, be a, I'll follow Christ regardless of the cost. You count it and you say, I don't care what the cost. I don't care how far it takes. Peter and them, they said, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And it, it, that's what they asked the Lord. I forgive him seven times. No, he says 70 times seven. And what he meant was endless. So he's raised the bar. So here in this text, it's even deeper. How far did Jesus go? That's what we're going to see. I can't just leave these words and just skip over them. They're too important. You have the negative. We're going to have unity. We've got to deal with that. But you have the positive. A whole different mind. A different way of looking at life. Do you realize that's what Christ wants to bring us to? That your whole, my whole, my whole view of life. Can you imagine how that's going to stand out where you work? Can you imagine the people that you interact with? If you humble yourself, and I do, and we have this mind, this is the kind of Christ, a Christianity that our Lord is calling us to. Paul says, this is the example. He said, well, I could never reach that. You're right about that. No one, not a person, can follow Christ on their own. It's too much. No one could ever be a Christian without the Holy Spirit within them. And we are always going to need to ask the Lord's forgiveness. But this is what, what are we, what's our goal? What's, what are we? Transformation. And where does it happen? It happens in the mind. It happens in the way we think. And what are we thinking different about? We're thinking different about ourselves. Do you hear that? We're dealing with our selfish ambition and our pride. And we're looking, esteeming others as being more worthy, more important than us. And we're putting their interests before ours. All that's encompassed in those two verses is what begins to be illustrated in verses 5 through 8 by Jesus Christ. What does it mean to put others' interests above your own? Look at Calvary. What does it mean to be selfless? What does it mean to not be about me? Look at Calvary. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There was no, nothing could be demanded of him. Too hard. And that's the mind. I confess to you. And I'm not just preaching now, but when I look at these words, I wonder if I've ever been a Christian.
Have you ever wondered, if, am I really a Christian? Now, I don't mean to throw you off. Because I like that word in the Bible, by grace. By grace, you're saved. Not of yourself. And so I have to be reminded of that. But I think when we search the scriptures like this, there's no place for a proud Christian. Is there? Because here's the standard. Let's stand together.